Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hi, I'm Anoush, and on today's episode of the New Statesman podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by Kim Leadbeater, Labour MP for Batley and Spen, who received an MBE last year for services to social cohesion. She won her seat in a by-election last July. Her sister, Jo Cox, was the MP for the constituency when she was murdered in office by a far-right extremist in 2016. Also joining us is Rory Stewart, Senior Fellow at the Jackson Institute at Yale University and former Conservative MP turned independent for Penrith and the Border, who ran in the 2019 Tory leadership election and served in various ministerial positions under Theresa May, including as International Development Secretary. Thanks so much for joining both of you. Great pleasure. Thanks, Anush. Hi. Now, the reason we've brought you both together today is to discuss the culture wars that are increasingly characterising political life in this country and to try and figure out how we can work through them to prevent a future fracturing of our national values and what the risks are of such a fracturing. Ultimately, how can we learn to disagree better? And I don't know what you two think, but it does feel like everything at the moment is being turned into a culture war, particularly by this administration, from attacks on lefty lawyers over asylum policy to critiques of the England football team taking the knee to the phrase woking from home to describe civil servants working remotely. And at the New Statesman, we published an exclusive piece last week on our special State of the Nation site, which is all about how Britain is thinking today. And it revealed through polling that suggests voters aren't actually that divided over the typical sort of cultural issues like those of British history and Britain's place in the world, trans rights, unconscious bias and racism. And I do encourage our listeners to have a read of it if they haven't already. But Rory, if you wouldn't mind me coming to you first, why, if it's not really how the country is divided, is the government trying to drive such a wedge between itself and Labour on these kind of subjects? Well, I think it's partly that in Britain, we often end up following the United States. And that's the way that American politics has really gone in the last 30 years. I've obviously been teaching at Yale University, so I've been in the middle of this in the States. And America really is quite bizarre. Obviously, you have the extreme Trumpian right, Mm. but you also have the Democratic Party increasingly taken over by its own version of culture wars. Biden's administration is very caught up in issues of American social justice, trans rights, etc. And it's quite difficult, actually, in the United States to find space to have the kind of conversations that happened 20 years ago about foreign affairs or economic policy 
because everything is now divided between one lot talking about defunding the police and another lot trying to refight battles from the American Civil War. So I, I think the answer is that they've spotted something in the United States and in some slightly disturbing cynical fashion, they have concluded that this is actually a way to get people whipped up, probably because we live in an age where there aren't actually deep disagreements in the way that there might have been in the 1970s about the way that we actually run our economy. There aren't that many big ideas out there. And I think people fall back on these kind of culture wars, partly because they have run out of ideas. It's interesting you say fall back because it sometimes seems to be used, particularly by Boris Johnson's government, to distract from issues that are actually voter priorities, things like rising bills. After all, stoking a culture war is a lot cheaper than, say, upping universal credit. That's definitely true. And I think that's also true, probably, of the way in which we're getting a lot of rhetoric around the war in Ukraine, Mm. where although the government, I think, is correctly providing strong support to the Ukrainian government, the British government is not actually at war. But you get a lot of talk as though somehow Britain was fighting in Ukraine. And that, too, is probably a way of distracting from the hard yards of actually trying to deal with the cost of living crisis, which is really tough. That's very deep, difficult issues around inflation, very deep, difficult issues about the structure of the British economy that no party really has much of an answer to. Mm. But people yeah, can therefore fall back on, as you say, these cheaper issues. And Kim, you experienced this firsthand, didn't you, when you were trying to talk about what was important to the residents of Batley and Spen in that by-election last year, and various figures descended on the town and tried to make it about things that it actually wasn't about. And there were a lot of identity issues that were brought into the campaigning. Many of our listeners will have seen you being berated aggressively in the street by an anti-LGBT campaigner. And there were many other issues and and figures coming into the town to whip up identity politics in the area. I came to cover the by-election and it it did feel like quite a toxic one to me. I just wondered, how did you navigate that? You're right. Sadly, it was a fairly nasty by-election and there was quite a lot of identity politics playing out there, quite a lot of people trying to pull people into tribes. And I think what I did to try and navigate that was build on the work that we'd done through the Joe Cox Foundation, Mm. the charity that we set up after Joe was killed, which is very much based around focusing on the things we have in common. And I think that's something that in communities and in society we need to place a lot more emphasis on. We've seen some very divisive times, but ultimately when I was knocking on doors across Batley and Spen, which is a very diverse constituency with people um, from all different backgrounds, but they fundamentally cared about a lot of the same things, their kids' education, the state of the roads, crime and antisocial behaviour. So it didn't matter what your background was from, the conversations were very similar. But sadly, we had people coming in um, to the constituency, focusing on the divisive issues and the things that people quite rightly feel passionately about, but the things that pit people against each other rather than the things that bring them together. So I tried to try and coalesce people around a, a common vision for the constituency, which is about pulling together, even when times are really tough. And using my experience of when Joe was killed to do that, when we often see the best of people in a crisis and when times are difficult. And I guess one of the questions is, how can we maintain that sense of togetherness when we're not in a critical situation? Because again, we saw the best of that during the pandemic. We saw how people pulled together in those initial stages and were not tribal anymore. They actually came together for the good of their communities. So it's how we keep that togetherness going and stop people being drawn towards the extremes. And it is a real challenge. 
Mm. I remember speaking to Shabana Mahmood, Labour's national campaign coordinator last year, and she was warning that Labour shouldn't pretend cultural issues aren't going to come up and not to ignore them and to try and get more comfortable discussing race and immigration and taking voters' concerns in good faith. And Tony Blair wrote something similar for us last year as well, saying staying quiet on cultural issues or pretending they don't exist is a, is a mistake and keeping your head down isn't a strategy. So I wonder if you agree, was the way that you navigated those issues you were just discussing, is that a model for how Labour should be dealing with these kind of occasions where people are exploiting different identities to try and drive a wedge between, you know, Labour and, and, and its opponents? Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. We should be able to have an open and honest conversation about anything. And we should be prepared within that conversation to listen really carefully about the views of other people who don't think like we do. And I think this is part of the problem. We've become so entrenched in our own views and our own positions that we stop listening to other people. And the only way that you're going to find common ground or find a way forward is by doing that. We have to listen to other people's views. We have to sometimes accept that we disagree on things. And this is about disagreeing with respect and with civility. And the only way we can do that is by having those difficult conversations. And also understanding why someone thinks the way they think and feels the way they feel. And that's generally because of their life and what they've been through. So people might hold views that we profoundly disagree with, but until you listen to them and hear their stories, you don't know why. And that's got to be the starting point for any of those difficult conversations, I think. Mm. Can I just reflect on Kim? I think what she's saying is very interesting because thinking back on being an MP, there is a very strange gap between what matters to people in their daily lives, the kind of things that people are concerned about, which could be education, could be planning in their own town, could be policing in their own community. And the kind of things that get talked about in elections. And I remember in Cumbria, you'd suddenly lurch from having a very practical conversation about residence parking to suddenly going into a hustings where everyone was shouting about the Saudi bombing of Yemen. Or they suddenly wanted to get into some extraordinary conversation around China's role in global climate change. And it's a very strange, almost schizophrenic profession yeah. because... You can never quite get the tone or the level right. The moment you think you've got onto a real issue that you're talking, someone can suddenly shift it around to something from complete left field. I think that's a really good point, Rory. And one of the things I've found hardest about this job, which I've been in now for, for 10 months, is the range of things that you get involved with, that you're expected to know about, that people contact you about, and how do you navigate all those different subjects. And I remember saying to Joe, I said, you've got no chance. How can you go from speaking about potholes to Palestine? And you can do that within the space of half an hour. And it really is a challenge. But also we've got a responsibility to listen to people on all those subjects and try and represent them to best we can, as best we can. But it does mean that you are juggling lots of different subjects at the same time. And I think that, that is a real challenge. That's so interesting. And I suppose it, it's becoming that way more and more because there is a political incentive, isn't there, to sort of divide the country via these ge almost geographical identity divides, what with the Red Wall and the Conservatives going after this new vote. Boris Johnson doing it over and over again at PMQs. I think the last time was when he accused Keir Starmer of wearing a smart Islington suit. It seems to be a sort of obsession to paint their opponent's in this certain way that doesn't necessarily make that much sense, but perhaps they do see as a 
politically beneficial. Will it ever stop happening if if they are trying to carve the country up in this way that they are constantly electioneering, even outside of campaign time? If I could just come in quickly for Kim, I mean, I think it, it's worth bearing in mind that with Boris Johnson, this has been his shtick for 20, 30 years. If you read these columns he used to write in the late 90s, early 2000s when he was a journalist, it's just a continual parade of all this kind of stuff. He His main line of argument, his main line of comedy, because he was a kind of comedian, was always about mocking regulation, teasing what he thought of as political correctness. He was a great one for saying, I should be free to use my mobile phone or my bicycle, or it would be him famously making very offensive comments about people in burqas or making very homophobic statements or just creating very misleading, ludicrous ideas, the European Union and its relationship to Britain. But I I always think with Boris, it's not exactly some brilliant new political ploy he's come up with. It's been his thing. And in a way, he was selected as prime minister because there's something about it that voters respond to. I mean, I found it very difficult to deal with when I was running against him for leadership, but I've had to acknowledge that there's something about that way of looking at the world, which appeals to people who feel that they're being nannied or feel there are too many regulations or feel that they're not given freedom in the areas they live, they want to have freedom of. This this slogan about take back control comes into this too. But so I think culture wars is one way of spinning it. Another way of spinning it is just that it's a very successful popular shtick. Kim, do you want to come in on that? Yeah, no, I, th- I think that's that's a fair point. It's like you go heavy on one particular subject that appeals to a specific group of people and that makes you extremely popular. And that is what Boris Johnson does. It's what other sort of high-profile individuals in politics have done. And I guess it's the whole thing about personality in politics, isn't it? And when you get a character people like that and sometimes they might not even really be listening to what that character is actually saying and whether they believe in it or think about it because they think oh this is something a bit different and that worries me and I think it's also the thing that we've got to get clear to people that just because I care about one issue doesn't mean that I don't care about other issues so yes we might be doing lots of work on Ukraine and quite rightly too that doesn't mean that I suddenly don't care about Heckman like or Plaquita or any other towns in my constituency so it's how we get that message across as politicians that it is possible to cover all those different things and care about all those different things. But the way that Boris Johnson goes about his politics, he picks his issue, he goes big on it, he gets people very excited. And the danger then is that people are actually listening to see whether there's any substance behind it or whether there's actually any facts behind what he's saying. And to be fair, he's done that really well. I think fortunately for us, people are now seeing through that and seeing that that kind of showmanship and whatever you want to call it is all right and I got news for you. But actually... When you're running the country, you need something with a bit more substance behind it. That's what you'd hope, isn't it? And, and I agree with you. The great hope is people are going to focus on how good are you at running the country? How good actually was your COVID response? How many people died? What did it mean for the economy? Have you put a border in the Irish Sea? These kind of questions. But somehow it seems to be difficult moving the political conversation onto that. And it's very strange. It's not the way that you'd choose someone who was going to be you know, running a business. It's not the way you'd choose someone who was going to be, you'd want to work with in an office. But somehow in politics, people are still prepared to go for comedians. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. But then it all comes down to the whole nature of politics and what a bizarre world it is. And I'm new to it, but there's so much about it that, as you quite rightly say, Rory, just wouldn't happen in any other industry, in any other sector. 
the whole nature of a politician's job, the whole way that parliaments roar, so much of it is so antiquated and needs modernising, but people like the traditional side of it, so how do you get that balance? We haven't even touched on the abuse and the intimidation and the threats and, and all that side of it. So I just think there's a whole big piece of work that needs to be done around politics and how we can engage people more and whose responsibility it is to engage people more. And the media's role in that, social media's role in that, politicians' role in that. And I talk about this a lot and I do a lot of work on this because we want to get good people into public life. And we don't want those people to be put off because they're scared or because they don't think they belong there because of their background or whatever it is. So there's a huge big piece of work to be done. But I think the kind of confrontational politics that we see sadly at Prime Minister's Questions is a real turnoff for most people. And I always talk about the fact that it's not always like that. There's so much good stuff that goes on behind the scenes. And I'm sure, Rory, you had your experience of this on a cross-party basis. The really good work that gets done is on the select committees, it's on the APPGs, where you're having powerful conversations to make a difference on issues which transcend the party politics of it. But we don't see much focus on that. Hi, it's Anoush here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to the New Statesman with a very special offer. You can subscribe for just a pound a week. That's 12 weeks for £12. If you go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. We'll be right back. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads. The best of our reported features and essays read aloud. Songs are like tattoos, Mitchell said on Blue. Having one written about you is immortality and fiction rolled into one. Featuring writing from our authors, including Kate Mossman on Joni Mitchell's former muse and lover, Jeremy Cliff on his journey through France before this year's presidential election, and Sophie McBain on the refugee crisis. Don't die, he kept shouting. He didn't answer when Marwa screamed back, Who is dying? Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads wherever you get your podcasts. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Kim, I wanted to pick up on your mention of abuse because often people will say this is politics. Before wokeness, we had another word for it, political correctness. This is how it's always been. But actually, there have been real life consequences to politics being done in this way that we've just been discussing. And you actually, you experienced people trying to exploit your own identity during your experience of that by-election, for example. And so there are very real consequences to this way of doing politics. A good example, and I think this comes back to Rory's point about the Americanization of some of these uh, cultural issues was Boris Johnson making that Jimmy Savile-themed smear against Keir Starmer. And there were a lot of moderate Conservatives, in fact, many Conservatives who were very uncomfortable with that. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And I think, you know, the more that we see that division and the more that we see 
I don't know, those kind of attacks in politics. And we see that at the highest level. It does go down into the real world. It does go out into communities. I was speaking to one of my colleagues, I think it was Jess Phillips, who's had huge amounts of abuse, as have many MPs, particularly female MPs. But she said that people have actually sent her emails which quote the lines that Boris Johnson has used in the chamber. So it's normalised it and it's justified it. And we see so much of that. And it, it really worries me that we've got such toxicity in politics that A, we will lose good people and B, people will not want to put themselves forward for public life because it is a massive problem. But then we've also got to look at the politician's responsibility in creating a more civilised culture. And that's why until we take this holistic approach, no one's going to feel sorry for MPs. We've got very privileged jobs and we get paid well. But equally, we didn't sign up to have threats and abuse and our family in fear and, and intimidated and all that sort of stuff. So we've got to look at how we behave. The media, I think, has got to look at how it covers politics and doesn't just focus on the, the hugely divisive issues. Social media clearly has got a massive role to play. We've got the online safety bill coming through Parliament in the next few months. How can we look at social media so that we're not just stuck in those echo chambers that we talk about, listening to people who've got the same views as us and we're broadening our horizons a little bit? So there's so much that needs to be done to change the political culture, but I do think it has to start from the top. And politicians in senior positions need to take responsibility for how they conduct themselves. Yes, Rory, I wanted you to come in on that. You mentioned that you ran in that contest against Boris Johnson. You found some of this stuff quite difficult to navigate as one of his um, opponents. Is it up to Conservatives like you were in the party, the role you played in the party, who are uncomfortable with this kind of divisive rhetoric to do something about it to calm it down? Yes, it is, of course. I think people shouldn't have voted for Boris Johnson and they should get rid of Boris Johnson because I think he's a very bad influence on British public life. I think he his refusal to resign is really sad. Remember, Amber Rudd not very long ago resigned over Windrush mm. for inadvertently misleading Parliament. She, she wasn't conscious that she was misleading Parliament, but she thought because she'd misled Parliament at all, whether she meant to or not, she should resign. And the fact that Paris has managed to now be convicted by the Metropolitan Police for something he denied he did and doesn't find it necessary to resign is really, really disturbing. But it's part and parcel with what he is as a human, the way in which he behaves as though ordinary rules don't apply to him. It's something that people have said about him. I think his schoolmaster said when he was a teenager that he behaved as though ordinary rules didn't apply to him. So yes, conservative MPs are going to have to step up and be serious about this. But it's difficult because we then get into this complex question, which Kim's raised around the media and the public, because so long as they get the impression that the public love him and they're going to vote for him and they're winning 81-seat majorities, it's very difficult to make these arguments. I was, of course, saying during the leadership campaign, you can't possibly vote for this guy because he's a disaster and the public's not going to think he's suitable to be prime minister. They'll think this guy's a buffoon. He's obviously lied a lot in the past. He doesn't have a good reputation and you're going to lose the election. And of course, they went into the election and they won an 81-seat majority. So I think that the, we keep coming back to this thing. I mean, nobody likes pointing the finger at the public, but in a sense, the public are the employers of the politicians. And they're very odd. I've never had an employer like it because it's an employer who spends their whole time telling you you're useless, dishonest, corrupt, incompetent. It's not very good for the self-respect and dignity of the individual working for the employer. Kim, have you ever felt that way? Gosh, you do get huge amounts of negativity directed at you. Fortunately, I have to say, in my short time, we've also had a huge amount of positive feedback from constituents and from members of the public with the stuff that you do behind the scenes that, again, isn't focused on the casework that you do, whether it's helping people out with housing or schools or those sorts of really important things to people's day-to-day -day lives. I do think Rory's right. I think we have a specific problem with Boris Johnson and the way he conducts himself. 
But I also think there is a broader problem around politics. And sadly, this is not a part of political point as far as I'm concerned. We do see bad behaviour, you know, from various people across the political spectrum. And we've got to revisit the principles of public life. And I, I focused a lot on these when I was working for Joe's Foundation. Selflessness, integrity, objectivity, accountability, openness, honesty and leadership. That's what we should be guiding ourselves by. And sadly, I don't think enough MPs read those principles regularly enough because we should be reading them almost on a daily basis and thinking, how have I conducted myself today? What have I done, either in my constituents or in Westminster, that has been driven by those values and those principles? And I think that's a really important piece of work for us all to do. And I think also what we've got to remember is, look, we do see bad behaviour in politics. Sadly, in recent times, we seem to have seen quite a bit. But there's also many brilliant people in politics who are working extremely hard in their constituencies, day in and day out, helping people and conducting themselves in a really appropriate manner. Rory, I am a huge admirer of yours. I thought the way that you conducted yourself in public life was exemplary. Yeah, it doesn't mean I agreed with you on everything. And there's people now who I look at across the, the, the political divide and I think, gosh, I've got so much time for you. I think the way you do the job is really good. But I will fundamentally disagree with you on lots of things. And I guess that's the point, isn't it? That's the broader point. It's being able to have those strong, powerful, passionate, robust debates on principles that you really believe in, but being able to do that in a respectful, civilised manner without it descending into personal insults or attacks. And if we can do that as politicians, I hope that filters down to the real world because let's face it, Westminster is not the real world. And, and, and then other people do the same and say, yeah, we'll listen to your viewpoint. Actually, I disagree. Let's have a fair conversation about it. And do you think, is that a place that British politics can get to? You know, even the very design of the chamber is adversarial. Yeah, no, I think it's, I think it's incredibly difficult. I think it's something that if we really start hard working now, work up thoughts about it being both, I think, actually producing a new written constitution and a whole new way of thinking about politics. We may eventually get there, but it can take probably 20, 30, 40 years to get this kind of cultural change through because, of course, the existing members of parliament, the existing parties have no incentive really to change their behaviour. They're used to the system as it is. Almost by definition, they're in there because they know how to use that system. And I've been heartbroken that attempts to try to change the system a little bit. For example, I like the system that used to exist in London where it was more like the French presidential system, because if you didn't get 50% of the first round, there was a runoff, and that gave more chance for independent candidates. That's just been abolished. And unfortunately, Labour didn't oppose that in the House of Lords any more really than the Conservatives did. So I think there's a real issue here, which is that you're asking turkeys to vote for Christmas when it comes to trying to reform these things. Thank you so much, both of you. I think that's all we've got time to discuss today. But you will be discussing all of these issues and more in greater detail at ReStitch, the Social Fabric Summit, a two-day summit being held in London on the 24th of May and Halifax on the 27th of May to bring together some of the world's leading thinkers to discuss the challenges affecting our society and share practical steps to create more connected communities. Thank you so much, both of you, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian. We're produced by Adrian Bradley and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening and don't forget to subscribe and leave us a nice review.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.